Bible there to Revelations chapter 15, verses 1 to 2. We've thus far finished 14 chapters. We shall now move into the final phase of things. Let's read together Revelations chapter 15. And uh, for our purposes this morning, we will be occupied with the first two verses. It reads, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your wonderful word that needs not to be, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be bolstered by us. It is your word. Our understanding, Lord, we appeal to you that you, you would supervise our understanding through your spirit so we don't leave here with some wayward understanding of what you intend to convey to us. Help us, Lord, to be sensitive to the fact that there is your word. Control um, what we sometimes will think is in our control, Lord. We ask you to be in control of that, that the outcomes, Lord, will always be your glory and honor. So thank you, Lord, even when we come to remote texts like these verses and these chapters in the book of Revelation, which most people will uh, shy away from, we ask, Lord, that when we study it, under the supervision of your spirit, our minds will be properly guided. Most importantly, we will find the counsel in your word to know that our God is in control despite the fact that this world is out of order. There must not be any sense of panic or paranoia amongst us. We serve a living and a true God who loves his church, who died for her, who is gone to prepare a place for her, who is soon to return in the skies to call her home, to be with himself. This is our blessed hope. No man can take this from us, we pray. But for those left behind, our hearts yearn for them. We are afraid for them. They don't know what's coming. They don't understand the seriousness that the world will be plunged, plunged into. Hopefully, Lord, that you will get them to see that this morning. They would repent of their sin and come to know you as their Savior. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. The verses before us <coughs> um, is a tribute to the tribulation saints. I know we've seen much of that in the seventh chapter a while back, but they've come before us again now for obvious reasons as we shall find out as we delve into the verses. So we come now in this 15th chapter to the beginning of the end of the end. So, as far as this chapter is concerned, this chapter 15 is a prelude to the end. Now, it's not uncommon for John to write this way. Previously, we had two prelude chapters, chapters 4 and 5, before the seals were opened. You might recall that a long time ago. We also had a prelude to the trumpet judgments in chapter 8, verses 8, 2 to 6, before the trumpet blasts were unleashed. So it's not uncommon for John to do the same here. But more often than not, when he does that, this what some writers have called a celestial interlude, we know that when John is doing this, he's doing this for an important reason. And I'll get to that in a minute. So our chronological movement now, as we have gone through these chapters, takes a giant leap forward into the scheme of things. But as it is with all things John... Before he tells us what will transpire on earth, he takes us into heaven. Isn't that important to understand? This is an important vantage point to, that a Christian must see. In other words, as an interlude, we have to see earth's crises, earth's chaos, earth's disorder from a heavenly vantage point. That's what he wants us to see. It's no point us seeing it from this vantage point. We, we can see all the madness around us, but we won't get the proper perspective. So John always does this. Before the seal's judgment, he had done this. Before the trumpet's judgment, he had done this. Before this uh, 
unleashing of all these bold judgments, he does this too. We must understand all these judgments from heaven's point of view, not from earth's point of view. So he puts us back into heaven. To look, to look at it from earth's perspective is to blur the line between the wickedness of man on the one hand and the righteousness of God on the other. That is a very bold line. It is a very distinct line. Provided we keep this perspective. You see. If we don't take John's perspective, then that big, bold, clear line becomes blurred between the wickedness of man and the righteousness of God. That's the danger. It is to see earth's problems as an existential crisis rather than God's holy wrath against man's rebellion. Because that's the perspective of the apostle. It is to see it only as man's plight rather than man's punishment. Because that's the perspective of the, of the apostle. It is to look at the world with pity rather than dread falling upon this pathetic world from an insulted holy God. So then heavenly signs are for heavenly purposes. They don't serve earthly purposes. They are from the Lord to show us what is to come from Him. See? The sign is from the Lord to show us what is about to come from the Lord. They remind us that the world is, is, it is, is in His control, not in man's control. Sure, at this time that we are studying called the tribulation, the Antichrist is doing his thing, the false prophet is doing the, his thing, and they combine their efforts and do their thing, but their thing doesn't matter as a thing. The thing that does matter is what God is doing. And that principle transcends any dispensation. It is a question that must govern our thinking currently in this age. Yes, for the sake of awareness, we can uh, discuss what said government is doing and what they are doing there in Europe and they are doing in America. We can discuss all these things going on, but it doesn't matter until we discuss what God is doing. So the world is, is in his control. They tell us all these heavenly signs that as creator, he gets to do or allow whatever he wants to allow for his purposes. Even if it is a terrible man like the Antichrist. But that serves God's purpose, not Satan's purpose. Always keep that in mind. That the Antichrist comes at a future time and unleashes all that he does and with the false prophet and the dragon they do what they do. That serves God's purpose, not their purpose. <clears throat> they also tell us that despite the destruction that invariably follows, God always has regeneration in mind. Always. He always wants to take man's wickedness and clean up his filth. Because the more he tries to do it himself, the worse he makes it. So, we are dependent on man for awareness of what's going on in this world. But we are not dependent on man for the understanding of why things are going on in this world. They can't answer that question. So aside from these prelude chapters then, that take and insist that we take a vantage point of God, heaven, aside from that, these interludes and, the, and how they function, they are also interlocking. They knit together what many people see as three separate series of judgments and God sees it as one composite whole. One essential whole fulfilling his one overall purpose, bringing the end that he has designed, that he desires. It does not bring three different ends. When the seals were opened, it affected, generally speaking, one-fourth of mankind, as was revealed in chapter 6 verse 8, leaving behind three-fourths of the world. 
so to speak, to face the next set of judgments. When the trumpets were eventually blasted, the remaining three-fourths came under fire, effecting one-third of the total there, as was revealed in chapter 8, verse 7, leaving behind the last two-fourths, or the last two-thirds, however you want to uh, view it. I don't care about the mathematics of it. <clears throat> the point being, the earth is half of what it used to be at this point before we start chapter 16. It's literally half of what it used to be. It's been reduced to half of itself. <clears throat> and this in itself tells you that the land does not end things in one fell swoop, not one final thump of judgment. <clears throat> He's bringing things to an end using this method, using this chronology, using his time because he wants men to repent. He could have done it in one seal judgment, opened that seal and wiped everybody off the planet and that's it, done and dusted. You and I would have no um, recourse to contend such an act of, from a sovereign God. But he does it systematically, slowly, making his point as he goes along because man must repent of their sin. But stubborn as he is, he still won't do that, though he is reduced to half of his original self. Moreover, not only are they interludes and interlocking each other, but they are preludes as well as postludes. I'll show you this. Every time John unfolds the judgment of the Lamb upon a rebellious world, after that, after the seal judgment, for example, then he shows us a chapter like chapter 7. What do we see there? We see men and women, tribulation saints, rejoicing in heaven. Again, a heavenly vantage point. After the trumpet judgment, we saw much the same thing in principle, where despite the persecution of Israel and, and many people who had taken aside, they were miraculously protected in the wilderness. Again, is John showing us, if you stand with God, you will be miraculously saved. And this is what he shows us after the 16th chapter of, of the bold judgments. Except the only difference here was, as I had explained, he had shown it to us already in chapter 14. What will happen after chapter 16? He just gave us the thing before the end. Of course, we don't like when books are written that way, does it? Do we? Now he does this because lest it be thought that believers somehow are caught up in the judgment of the Lamb and are lost in the judgment of the Lamb. Never, never, that never happens. <clears throat> he always shows believers are protected. He always shows believers are in heaven despite what happens on earth. This is what he always tries to show whilst he's showing us that judgment is real. It's not some uh, mythological thing that we are trying to explain to us. The suffering of the believer is terrible. They endure tremendous loss, but never at any moment, according to the way John has written these chapters, do we find them at a loss of their salvation. They always end up rejoicing in heaven. Always. And this is the same picture we see here in the second verse. It matters not what dire circumstance or existential crisis brought them to heaven. Torture, death, hanging, shooting, it doesn't matter. The point is, whatever the devil, whatever the Antichrist, and whatever the false prophet cook up to kill believers only hastens their departure from the earth and their entrance to heaven. That's all it is. They advance the plan of God. For our purposes, we are looking at the first five verses, not all five for this morning. But in these first five verses here in this chapter, which, by the way, we have already discussed in the chap chapter 14, verse 1 to 5, believe it or not. That perspective was the, uh, the landing of the Messiah on the earthly Jerusalem, you recall. This perspective is the standing of the saints, of the martyred saints in the heavenly Jerusalem. That tells us where the victory came to, the earthly Jerusalem. This tells us where the victory came from, the heavenly Jerusalem. And similarly, what we are going to look at in chapter 16, <clears throat> when we get there, enlarges upon what we already saw in chapter 14, verses 6 to 20. 
See, we've, we, we, we saw it already. Now you might say, well, if we <clears throat> saw it already and we studied it already and you took so much of time already, then I assume you're going to, better judgment will prevail and we'll give chapter 16 a miss. <laughs> no, that is not what better judgment would look like. <clears throat> It might be considered time-wasting uh, for many that, hey, if we've went through it again, why don't we skip these? No, the perspective will be lost if we do that. What we, are, what we have seen there in chapter 14 and what we will see in chapter 16 are different perspectives of the same. And what we have seen in chapter 14 was meant to whet your appetite for what's to come in chapter 16. Of course, we are dealing with judgments here, so the analogy might be not appropriate, <clears throat> but take it for what it's worth. Look, we don't get irritated when we read four different Gospels about one, but one Lord Jesus, do we? It's four different perspectives. It helps. It's great. <clears throat> This is also true when it comes to current events. We have various media agencies giving us their perspective on one event. And it helps to enlarge our view. Unfortunately, they end up distorting it more than anything else. But you can, again, allow that, that uh, illustration to, to go through. Of course, this distortion of perspective does not occur in the Bible. It, it occurs with, when humans are involved. It doesn't occur in the Bible. We have this in the Old Testament too. We have First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. Say, so why do we need so much books? Well, First Samuel is enlarged upon in First and Second Kings. Second Samuel is enlarged upon in First and Second Chronicles. It's a different perspective. Kings give us the political perspective of First Samuel. Chronicles give us the priestly perspective of Second Samuel. And we tend to enlarge our view. We enjoy it more when we, when we get that. Look, let me, let me put it like this, if you didn't get... If you have one scoop of ice cream, it makes you want more, right? Not less, right? Okay, well, that, that illustration applies to me personally. But that's my point. It must whet your appetite for what's to come. And that's the point of this small scoop of ice cream, so to speak, that John puts in here. <clears throat> The 12th to the 14th chapters uh, provided ample data for the forthcoming bold judgments. But having gone through that, we are fully prepared to receive it now. So again, what need have we of this particular chapter here, chapter 15? In this chapter, there are two visions, glorious vision. Two visions, the, and by the way, this is the shortest chapter in the entire book of Revelation, but it is a key chapter. If you miss this chapter, whatever is going to take place in chapter 16, 17, and 18, you're going to miss a lot out on in terms of perspective. <clears throat> in the first vision recorded in this small chapter, John sees martyred but victorious saints standing before God in heaven. Worshipping him, singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, as verse 3 puts it. He also sees the seven angels emerge from the temple to do what was already discussed in the previous chapter, verses 14 to 20. It was only that when we saw how it ends there in chapter 14, now we are going to see in these chapters how it was brought about. The details of the process shall we say, the means of it. <clears throat> and that way of writing, of course, does not appeal to many people, especially uh, those who like to read suspense novels and whodunit novels. You, you don't want to read one of those and open up the first chapter and read, it was the butler who did it. <laughs> but the next 20 chapters, we're going to tell you how he did it. And that will keep you uh, in rapt attention. Most people don't like that. But this is John's method. He tells us the butler did it. Now he's going to tell us how the butler did it, so to speak. So he wants you to stay because it's important. <clears throat> so why has he done this? Well, it's crucially important to understand not just what is to come, but why he's to come. The why question has to be answered. A lot of people know what's going on. They study end times. They do this. They read. They make their own notes from Revelation. But when you... Bring them to the why part of their studies. The answers are short, if that. Because they don't think about the why issue. 
that deeply. It's, it's human nature. When you hear of something coming, something big, something eventful, something life-changing, you want to know what is it and why. Why is it coming? These are two questions that we always like to answer, or like to ask. <clears throat> and that is why the Holy Spirit guided the Apostle John to write the, this particular book this way. Well, to keep people from doing what they love doing. And that is to make unnecessary guesses of what the end should be or should look like. We don't need to do that. <clears throat> could the Lord not uh, complete his agenda with the previous six seals? Of course he could. Why did he need six more trumpet judgments and now, now these seven bowl judgments? Is the earth not battered enough to, and to, to bring her to her knees? Yes, she is battered enough. All that he has done so far is enough to bring her to her knees. But she's not brought to her knees, is she? All these global pharaohs must experience all his wrath. They are still so hard. Mankind is so hard against God. And the more he tries to get her attention, the more hardness she manifests. So, from the Lord's point of view, nothing is going to be shortened or lessened or diluted, as he had said in the 14th chapter and the 10th, 10th verse. It's going to be undiluted. <clears throat> they will be, as he puts it, puts it there, drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength or undiluted into the cup of his indignation. They must drink it all. And he's not going to hold anything back. The speed and intensity is is increasing as it is in each judgment the lord has referred to this this period as the great tribulation in matthew 24 and he says unless those days were shortened shortened he didn't mean a 24 hour day becomes 18 hours or something like that he says well it's only three years and a couple of months those are very a short period of time i i I'm inclined to think it's not going to feel like a short period of time for those undergoing the judgment, of course. That's going to be, feel like forever. But it is, from his point of view, very short. It will be shortened. But the point is, none of it is going to be withdrawn. <clears throat> People presume upon the mercy of God. It's that God is a merciful God. He won't do that. Yeah, but aside from his mercy, he's also holy. Which holiness has been insulted. There's no... No going back from that. <clears throat> so join with me then as we unpack these two verses. That will be enough to occupy our attention for this morning. Firstly in verse 1, the sign of the seven angels and the seven last plagues. This opening verse here is basically the superscription, if you can call it that, of chapters 16 through to 18. These are the bad chapters. After that things look little better for us as we go on from there. <clears throat> this is the section that John in chapter 11 verse 14 has called the third woe. Woe means it's bad and nothing you're going to do is going to make it good. That's what woe means. All ma mankind's social programs and all his party and all his sending gifts to each other as we saw at the end of chapter 11 all that they do ain't going to take the woe away. It's a bad time, to put it mildly. <clears throat> the previous two are recorded in chapter 12. The previous two signs, that is. For here he says he saw another sign. The, in chapter 12, verse 1, we saw a sign of, the, of this woman clothed with the sun. He was referencing Israel there. And then he saw in the third verse of chapter 12, the sign of a fiery red dragon. And then he begins to explain how they come together by the latter attacking the former in chapter 12. But unlike those two visions, which were great, and they are called great, and of course they did occupy our attention, this he calls great and marvelous. Of nothing as he, has he ever said, great and marvelous. Except of this particular one. <clears throat> the word for marvelous directs our attention to the work of God. Marvelous are your works. In fact, that's exactly what the third verse says. Great and marvelous, O Lord, 
by your works. Not the works of the devil, not the works of the Antichrist, not the works of the false prophet. Their works may be great in, in that it is attention grabbing and it makes us concerned and it makes people anxious, but it's never marvelous. Because marvelous only occurs when we see God doing something. And that's why we need that heavenly vantage point, you see. If we don't get it, then we'll just see, uh, great is the work of the devil on the earth. No, we need that marvelous factor, otherwise we don't worship God. We must worship him. <clears throat> and that is why that heavenly vantage point is so important to us. It must strike us with awe and wonder resulting in worship. The point of the word choice is so that men, and more specifically John's readers, and us by extension, would be better served by focusing our attention on the Lamb rather than on this world. I'm not saying be uh, blasé and oblivious to what's going on. I don't, you know, some people, I don't care what's going on. I'm not saying have that attitude. I'm saying whatever you think is going on in this world, have a good, decent, healthy sense of awareness of what's going on in this world, but never let it stop you from worshipping God because you are so anxious about things in this world. You can't worship God with anxiety. You know that, right? Because anxiety is sin. In fact, Proverbs tells us that anxiety is wickedness. The drama and the magnitude of forthcoming scenes to be unfolded defy description, which is why so little is said of each bold judgment as it is poured out on this earth. And this is not a show that the Lord is putting on. This is not great and marvelous for its spectator value. Like how would you rate this great and marvelous show out of ten? I give it an eight. I give it a nine. This is not a show. He's not putting it on to show people, so what you think? Do you think this is great? No, he's not asking for your opinion. He's telling you that this is great and it is marvelous. <clears throat> it is great and marvelous and nothing less and nothing more than that. And technically, it is the sign that we are told here by John that is great and marvelous. Why? Because this is the pause on the world's pace. The world has tried to outrun God. But in doing so, they found that they ran right into him like a wall. You cannot outrun God. Much to their dread, they ran into him. These bowls are to the world. They're not for the world. It is from the Lamb to the world for what they have done. They are not intended to improve the condition of earth and make it a quote-unquote better place. He does that at a later stage. He does that. <clears throat> this is so that they may understand the consequences of their wickedness and the choice that they are make to reject his messiahship. They ruined this so-called better place. Irreparably, from their point of view. Messiah is to make it a better place, which he will do in his time, not theirs. But first... Men must be judged. And they will. Men, he's going to judge the hell out of them before he makes this a better place. Men are to walk the plank of their sinking ship. But the witnesses are always taken out first. The church has long gone in the rapture. Tribulation saints constantly go out. They die they are horrendously tortured and eventually die. But the range and intensity of this is much larger and more intense than anybody has ever seen. And the Lord says that in Matthew 25 as well. So although it might be comparative in terms of judgment, it is quite literally incomparable. Earth's history has never seen anything like what's going to be unfolded in chapter 16. There's never been a time in our history to compare anything to it. The angels, we read in this verse, were weighed with this responsibility. And this is implied by the use of the word having, <clears throat> which explains the duty of the completed task. They didn't just have it like they were 
having dinner, sometimes English can be, doesn't convey <clears throat> the depth of the word, they had it, a weight of responsibility, like a millstone around their neck. They are having this duty, says John, which duty foresaw the Lamb's wrath to be, to, to be completed. Imagine having that kind of responsibility. Such an awesome responsibility to know that you have been tasked to do this and you have to do it before the Lamb's wrath to be completed. Of course, that principle transcends dispensations. It applies as much to us as it does to angels. What is... We don't have to do things to uh, hasten the Lamb's wrath or anything. But think about the principle. Can we even function with this kind of weight tied around your neck? Ask yourself this question. How much of the Lord's work remains undone because you are sitting with that weight of responsibility upon you rather than letting the Lord Get this responsibility done through you if you were submitted to him. You might say, well, if I don't do it, then the Lord's work is ended. No, the Lord will do use other people. If these angels don't want to do it, it's not like he's running out of angels, eh? If you don't want to obey the Lord and don't want to submit to him, he'll get his work done through others. But let it be duly noted, Christian, that weight that was yours, you will be severely disciplined. For that rebellion. You will be. Because that's wickedness and wickedness. Um, it's laziness and laziness is wickedness. This brings human history to a close. <clears throat> in the last seven plagues as recorded in chapter 16. Which we also refer to as the seven bow judgments. We have the wrath of God completed. It says here. To be completed. Which is why they called last plagues. And by the way, in that they are so designed, uh, designated last plagues, plagues implies that all that went through previously were also plagues. They were also meant to make man sore and wound him incurably, to afflict him. This is not some rash that man is going to experience or some pimples. These are plagues says the Lord. At the end of the seventh trumpet, in chapter 10, verse 7, the mystery of God was complete. That means there remains nothing that mankind has any more to be confused about regarding why God is unleashing all that he has. Imagine death. Imagine all those people in hell or on earth at this time they understand completely why they're being punished. Imagine being punished and you know that God is right in punishing you. Well, I can't imagine that, but I don't know why I'm asking you to. But try to think of it. It's not that they, they don't have the kind of minds that they can't process the why of it. They can. And they know. You know, people in hell know that they are being punished justly and rightly. Do you know that? None of them are saying, this is unjust, this is not right. They're not saying that. They know that it's right that they should be punished for all eternity. So mankind at that moment, moment understands his punishment, which he can do nothing about. And now at the end of the seventh bowl judgment, we now read that his wrath is now completed. He wants to bring this to an end. He wants to complete it. The Lord, let me tell you, leaves nothing undone. When he created the world, he looked back and said, it is good. It's done. Nobody can add to it. Everything that is done, I did it. Everything. I put systems and laws in place that will come about. And all you can do is rejoice. Discover. Learn. That's all you can do. But you can't bring anything, you can't add to creation. When he died on the cross, what did he say? It is almost done. He didn't say that. He says it is finished. You can't add to it, you can't improve upon it, you can't do nothing. You know at the end of the 16th chapter and all the bold judgments, what did he say? It is in the 17th verse of chapter 16, same thing. It is done. It's finished now. 
You can't do it. I did it. You can't undo it. I did it. You can't add to it. I did it. You can't do anything. All you can do is bow before the sovereign God. And who? Not only saints. Everybody. Those under the earth too, says Paul. They also bow. They need. They also worship God that he had completed everything. How do they do that? I don't know. I'm not a demon and I'm not going to go to hell. I don't know. All I know is they're going to bow their knees to the sovereign Lord. <clears throat> and while there might be a hint of relief for man to hear this, that yes, it will eventually come to an end, uh, there will be no reprieve for you. The sting is not going to be taken out. The effect, the pain, the burn, whatever is coming, is not going to be reduced. There's not going to be, ah, shame, just reduce it. These are nice people. No. None of that's going to be taken into consideration. Once the wrath of God is complete, the wrongs of man will eventually have been contained and condemned. And once the world is condemned, it cannot be condemned again any more than what is complete can be redone. Or for that matter, undone. God's anger against rebellious man will be satisfied. Now, his wrath against sin was satisfied on the cross. The father's wrath against sin was satisfied on the cross when his son died and shed his blood. But his wrath against sinful man will still be sat is yet to be satisfied. And this is the time that is coming. It will be satisfied in the crucible of these last plagues. Unlike the cross, the application of his wrath here produces only condemnation. No redemption. Take note that it is called the wrath of God. <clears throat> it's not the wrath of man. It is not the wrath of the Antichrist. It is not the wrath of the false prophet or the wrath of the dragon or anything. I'm not saying they don't have wrath. I don't give a hoot about their wrath. It doesn't count for anything. It is the wrath of God that must, must be praised. Yes, they have wrath. Yes, they unleashed. But they can only do destruction with it. But the Lord, through judgment, brings about replenishment at the end. They can't do that. The devil can't do that. The Antichrist can't do this. The false prophet can't do this. Man can't do this. He has never been able to do this. <clears throat> it points to the Lord's agenda. It's His wrath. It doesn't point to their agenda. What they do is not denied. It is just not sufficient enough to alter or affect His plans. Whatever they do does not hinder the Lord's plan, nor for that matter does it hasten the Lord's plan. The Lord's plan is the Lord's plan. No amount of evil and no amount of good will hasten His coming. He's coming when He's coming. Wrath is God's attitude towards sin. Of course, here the word directs our attention to what is being expressed now in these bold judgments. The word, when used today to refer to God's reaction against sin, <clears throat> is despised. Nobody wants to hear about God's wrath in the average conversation. And not surprisingly, that's because it highlights their sin. So who wants to have a conversation with you when it is in your, your intention only to highlight their sin? If they accede to his wrath, they must, with the same, acquiesce to their own guilt. And this they are not prepared to do. That is why it is so easy to go into some of these places, sometimes called churches, and come out saved, having never heard the gospel at all. Why? Or, at best, maybe some dumbed-down version of it. In the Bible... <clears throat> God's wrath is directed against two segments of humanity. Firstly, it's directed against Israel for their rebellion against him. And secondly, it's directed against any nation that wickedly treats Israel. Now, that doesn't mean that God uh, leaves other pagan nations uh, to their own and let them on. No, but it's primarily the directed to Israel and to nations that are against Israel. That is, you will find that the wrath of God 
in the biblical context emerges in these two spheres. This 70th week that we are talking about that we call the tribulation, Jeremiah calls in chapter 30 verse 7 of his book, the time of whose trouble? Jacob's, Jacob's trouble. This is the time of Jacob. They are experiencing his wrath for their rebellion and rejection of him. Except those who have turned to him, of course, for his protection. But the preponderance of them have not. And the Gentiles are also experiencing God's wrath too. After he had separated them, which account is in Matthew 25. There's so much then for the uh, sign of the seven angels and the seven last plagues. Let's move now to verse 2. The sea of glass and the sanctified tribulation saints. Now what is the sea of glass? Well, uh, the sign, or before I explain that, the sign of the seven angels appearing out of the temple is now interrupted with this vision of the tribulation saints. And we must understand this is the tribulation saints in heaven. This is not the church. The church has been gone before the tribulation began. But it is a rather hypnotizing metaphor. It demands our attention. The sea of glass. It is a phenomenon that we last saw in chapter 4. There, the church was in view. So hence the confusion with a lot of people. The placid state of its depiction in chapter 4 verse 6 <clears throat> reminded us of our completed state. Paul said that in Philippians 1.6. We are going to be brought to this completed state. Sanctified, purified. But in this context, it is punitive. What was compared to crystal in its shimmer there is now reflecting aspects of mingled fire here. So that portends something a little bit different. Why is there fire? It draws our attention to this purified state of these people. That's what God uses fire for. In other words, it is more, of a, it, it, it is more than a destination. It is their actual condition that is being referenced here. They have been purified by fire. Well, that's what's going to happen when you go through the tribulation, isn't it? It also portends the lake of fire that's still waiting. That hasn't been quenched. In its undisturbed state, it contrasts the final disturbance of man. It is like the, their lull before the storm is to come. It is almost as if it is, as if it is describing here a reservoir of judgment. In chapter 4 verse 6 it functioned as a mirror reflecting God's glory back to himself. But here it seems to be functioning as a platform for these tribulation saints to sing the praises of God. In chapter 4 verse 6 it was God's holiness seen in his people reflected back to him. But here the accent is on what proceeds from his holiness. So why the interjection then? Well, it is long believed that when the wicked are punished, the righteous rejoice. Psalms 37 verse 3 tells us. Now, upon hearing that, I know earlier on I said that his wrath has no spectator value. I remember saying that very clearly. What I mean is, more correctly, these tribulation saints don't praise the Lord because he can kill people. Do you understand that? That's not why they're praising him. For his ability to kill mankind by the billions. If we enjoy the punishments of other people. I've actually heard my man said, you know what makes me rejoice, my brother? I said, well, a couple of things. What makes him rejoice apparently is to know that unbelievers are dying in hell or suffering in hell. I said, that makes you rejoice? you got a messed up mind, man. That's not why they rejoice, because the Lamb has this ability to kill people. If we enjoy that other people are suffering, that may reveal the bitterness within our own hearts. The cry for the vengeance, some people say that the tribulation martyrs appeal to the Lord in the fifth seal in chapter 6 verse 10, was not so that they could enjoy their vengeance, it was so they could praise him for his vengeance. His retribution. Except they wanted it hastened. They wanted it sped up. And he told them, it's not your time. 
It's not for us to relish when our opponents and enemies get their own back. It is for us to pity them. Because they are lost. Even when we see Christians getting disciplined by the Lord for the nasty things that they have done to us. It is not for us to still rejoice in that. It is for us to help them and pray for them and encourage them to repent. If their praise is just for killing their enemies, then that means it's only going to be a once-off in heaven. One praise session and then we're done. Right? After all, we're praising God for killing our enemy. We just did one service. But what we read is praise is an eternal thing. It can only be an eternal thing if the one whom we are praising is eternal. It can't be based on any one-time act that he had done for us. But it must be based on his glorious eternal self. So they praise him now. For, the, for his power, for his glory, and on and on. We'll get into that song that is before us. We don't praise God because he can kill and destroy. By the way, that's paganism. You know why pagans praise their gods? Their horrible looking creatures and beings that they praise and offer fruits and whatever they offer to their gods? Because if they don't, he'll come for them. They do it in fear because he's a monster. You ever seen what their gods look like? So you give the thing fruit and money and whatever because you don't want to upset the thing because it's going to come and ruin your weekend and destroy you and cause all kinds of trouble. So that's why they praise the thing. Is that why you praise God? Because he's a horrible monster and if you don't give him money and give him things and go to church then he'll come and kill you and hurt you and do all kinds of horrible... You praise God for that reason? <clears throat> he's not a monster. He's majestic. We praise Him because He's loving and holy. Not frightening and destructive. But notwithstanding, as stroke upon stroke emerges and is unleashed upon their opponents and aggressors, they sing and worship God for His vengeance. They worship the Lamb for His righteousness that He has defended and vindicated. Keep in mind that they are in a sanctified state also, right? So their attitude is right. They're not on earth. They worship like this because his vengeance emerges from his holiness and justice. <clears throat> and that they are now mentioned means that they had to endure the, the wrath of man. They had to endure it. But now they get to celebrate the wrath of the Lamb. They have to go through martyrdom. You know, there's no picnic waiting for you if you're, going to, if you're going to be left behind, folks. There's torture, slow, horrible death, violent, violent death coming to you of the unimaginable kind. But of course, if you remain true to the Lord, you'll end up where they end up. But it won't be pleasant. So thus far, mankind has had enough and still his heart is hardened. And those who have submitted themselves to the Lord have been killed. And thus this verse 2 reminds them, and not all Christians. <clears throat> the church did not have victory over the beast. I, I can't emphasize that enough. We don't have victory over the beast. We don't ever experience that. Please try to get that through. In your head. We don't have victory over his image. We don't have victory over the number of his name. We never see the Antichrist. This mad, paranoid preoccupation with the Antichrist must cease immediately. It's disgraceful. It means you have not reconciled yourself to the doctrine of the rapture of the saints. Everything out there, the Antichrist, the Antichrist. Who gives a hoot if it is him? You can't stop the rapture. This victory is what the tribulation saints have enjoyed and done. So in their martyrdom, they will come to this end. So, <clears throat> while martyrdom is a reality today, I know, and it's growing and growing in, in the world, it's not the same for the majority of us. How many of you have suffered martyrdom in this church? I'm not talking about having a bad week or having somebody slander you or say something bad about you, having your boss fire you. I recognize those are 
terrible things. That's not, that's not a persecution that leads to martyrdom. So we don't, we can't, we don't get to compare ourselves with those saints currently in some parts of the world that are experiencing this kind of thing. Only those right at the end, they will survive martyrdom, but not persecution. And we know there will be those who will survive at the, uh, when the Lord arrives in Jerusalem. <clears throat> Keep in mind that the 144,000 Jewish evangelists are still preaching during this time. They enjoy a special protection from God that despite what the world is being plunged into from all these judgments, Somehow, and I don't know how, so I can't tell you how, but somehow the miracle of sovereign providence abides over these men and they preach throughout this time and nobody can touch them. And they reap a huge harvest. We saw in chapter 7, we see again now, we are reminded now in this verse, the harvest is always coming in. But of course, those who take the mark of the beast, it will be too late for them. You will be part of another harvest. <laughs> As explained in chapter 14 verse, I think it's 11th, the 11th verse there, chapter 14 verse 11. On the other hand, there will be those who will display great faith and according to our Lord's words in Matthew 24, will be able to keep a, give a cup of cold water to his disciples in his name. They will do this. Of course, when you do this, you come out of the closet. <laughs> you have now sided with the evangelists. So you're going to get what's coming to you. You attract. You can't be a secret disciple in this time. You can do a lot of hiding. But it eventually comes out. <clears throat> but you will never lose your reward, the Lord says. Sadly, as I'm highlighting, they, by so doing, they become conspicuous to the Antichrist and suffer his wrath. Miraculously, these men are preserved. At the end, these 144,000 unharmed, submitting to God, reaping a harvest of people, showing, showing one point to everybody and all that God, no matter how much judgment is being unleashed on the world or how much evil is being allowed to roam free on the world, God is still a God of grace. And people can get saved if they submit to Him. In any dispensation. His grace never ceases. That's why it's wrong to say. This is the age of grace. I don't like that expression. This is the church age. But grace has always been available. He administers his grace differently. In different dispensations. But he's always been a God of grace. <clears throat> so the principle remains. That. Where man is punished. God's grace still works. Now, of course, the works and acts of God are often a paradox to us. We don't understand it. But God does not work based on our understanding of His ways. He does not wait for us to understand His ways so that He can work. He asks us to trust Him, to serve Him, to submit to Him, to have faith in Him. Understanding catches up at different levels, at different speeds, and sometimes it even doesn't catch up to us. That's not the point. The point is we must obey the one who has all understanding of all things. So he can save on the one hand while he's damning on the other hand. Right? We can't do that. That's why it's so hard for us to understand him. And though unleashing terrible wrath on the one side, he can still apply his grace to all those who seek him, seek his grace. <clears throat> so this is glass then, the tribulation saints stand on. In that it is glass, it also tells us of its perspicuity, its clarity, its transparency. When the gaze is fixed upon this, the righteousness and integrity of the Lamb be seen. It's seen in all its blazing effulgence. This is, this is always what God wants the world to see about His Son. This is why He took them up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when the Lord withdrew His humanity, He made it very clear to the disciples, Peter, James and John, This is my Son! Hear Him! Why don't you guys shut up for one, for one minute? Peter is, oh Lord, uh, it's so nice to be here. It's actually lekker, you know. I got an idea, Lord. I'll just run it by you, but it's a great idea. Why don't we build one booth? One what are you talking about? Shut up. 
Hear him. Hear him. And the sea of glass is the mass of sanctified saints. And although this is what it is, it's still not the center of attraction, my friend. The Lamb is still the center of attraction. There, the image in chapter 4 verse 6 was used to describe the sanctified church before the throne of God. It was said to be like crystal in its pure state. But here we read that these victorious saints were standing on the sea of glass. This does not imply that they are superior to the church standing on or for that matter that we prop them up because they are weaker no there isn't such a thing in heaven it's John's way of keeping the distinctions clear that tribulation saints are different from the church saints while he is at the same time unifying the essence that we are all one before God and the Lamb hey by the way even Screwtape understood this he wrote a letter to his, his nephew, Wormwood, and he says in, in, in there in the Screwtape letters that God wants all his beings to be, quote, united to him, but distinct in essence. So he understands that. We are all one, but we can clearly tell each other apart. The same principle is true of all God's people, of all his sanctified states. In other words, although we are one, we are different. I think Hebrews 12 highlights this difference very clearly. Let me read it to you in the 22nd to the 24th verse. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. The latter part, of course, is a very fancy way of referring to the eternal memorial of Christ's complete and irreversible atonement in heaven. The blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. But the point is this, you can see there that the church of the first, firstborn, quote-unquote, is distinguished from, quote, the spirits of just men made perfect, which are Old Testament saints. We are distinct from them, but we are all one in heaven, all of us. It's not that the one is better than the other, there isn't such a thing. It is merely distinguishing them, not segregating them. This advances the praise of God to save men from all dispensations of His grace. It proves that God does this every time. There is never a time when He was unable to save any who came to Him. Unless it was too far gone for them. Remember, people in hell aren't repenting. People who take the mark of the beast aren't repenting. They may be regretting. They may be remorseful. But that's about it. It was too late. That's not repentance. The basis upon which they came, either made for their acceptance, if they came based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, or their rejection, if they came based on their own merit. That's how it's always been. Furthermore, they are said to be standing. And that posture in heaven is not material, except if it's trying to point us to something uh, something about their character. They stood up to the Antichrist by the Lord's strength during their time here, and thus are forever in a standing before God in the Lord's sight. That's how he views them. Like the church who is in right standing before God because he justified them by faith, so are they before him fully vindicated by him. Additionally, they were heretofore described as having palm branches in their hands in chapter 7 verse 9. But now they are seen with harps. So what are these harps of God? This is the last element of discussion. Well, these are harps of God. And I cannot harp on that enough. Because the preoccupation of many people is, what are these harps? Are they golden? Are they designed like this? Are they designed like the Old Testament liar? They... My point is, who cares? 
Why are you preoccupied with the design of the harp? Yes, the main point, they are harps of God. I don't know the design of the harp. I've never seen it. I don't know what it sounds like either. I'm thinking it's going to be sounding way better than any harp we've ever heard on this earth. That is my assumption and I think I'm, I'm right there. These are harps of God implying that this is music to God's ears. This is what praise is. It's not whether it sounds nice to us. It's more important is how does it sound to God. Make a joyful sound. Make a joyful noise, people say, right? To whom? To God. That tells you what that must be like. It's not a celestial jam session going on here. These are his harps, his, which they have. And they are subject to the same responsibility, same word. They have, having harps of God. Same responsibility that the angels have to ensure that what they are dispensing in praise is equal to what the angels dispense in service. And it emphasizes, celebrates the plan, the purpose, the design of the Lamb of God. That's why we praise. They rejoice with the instruments of God's design. Yes, praise is, is part of the plan of God to celebrate His will as it unfolds. We praise Him. Paul says you must learn to do this. He says you must be thankful. But, but it's all part of praise only when things are good. No. Both when things are bad too. And yes, praise is part of God's plan. Sadly, it is perverted to soothe the hearts of men rather than to savor the holiness of God. Praise and worship services today is more how we can get men to feel better about themselves rather than how we can get them to be sobered in front of a holy God. Praise is not what men do. To uplift themselves. It is what you should be doing. To praise God. To uplift his name. Despite what you are feeling. Let me just say this one postscript. Postscript. Before we get to the conclusion. You know there are signs all around us today. Perhaps more signs than in any other previous generation. That we can think about. But none of them are prophetic signs. Please try to understand that. Is this not the sign? Is this not? I get asked. It's not prophetic. Do you know what a prophetic sign is? A prophetic sign tells you of something that needs to be fulfilled. For the church, nothing needs to be fulfilled. Do you understand that? Nothing. There's a nice book back there called about the rapture. You can buy it and read it. Ed Heinsen and Mark Hitchcock. They say the rapture is a quote-unquote signless event. There are no signs left for the church. You know why? Because the church is to be made ready by the Spirit of God, not by signs. Stop looking for signs. The only time signs will kick in is after the rapture. Then those signs become prophetic because now it all points to the second coming of Jesus Christ. There are no signs for you to see that are prophetic in nature. I mean... You see, after this blessed hope of the rapture of his church, that event that we must be looking for, Paul says, watch, look there, not at what's going on around you. After that event, the heavenly signs then become apparent. But then you are not around. It must become apparent for them, not for you. You have only one thing to look for, and that is the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only thing you must look for. Let's conclude. Is it possible to stand against the Antichrist in that age? Of course it is possible to stand against the Antichrist in that age. So if you're planning to be left behind, if you're unsaved, you will be left behind. Let me encourage you. (laughs) You will be able to stand against the Antichrist. Yes. However, this will lead to inevitable torture and eventual death for you. In this age, it is still Satan's agenda to destroy Israel. He thinks he can do it. He knows he can't destroy the church, 
But he attacks Christians anyway, just to make our life as uh, miserable as possible, so we don't serve God and we don't live in full joyfulness in the Lord's world. So he attacks us individually. But he's still out to destroy Israel, because in his mind he still thinks that he can, if he destroys Israel, he can prevent the Lord from returning to this earth and rule from Jerusalem. Well, that's his delusion and madness. Let him do as he pleases. It won't work. But it is still his agenda to do that, even after the rapture. In fact, after the rapture, he doubles down. He's now more convinced than ever that he can destroy Israel. And the Antichrist and his false prophet that combined their effort with him joined together to rob this world of many more people. To rob them of the light, the gift of eternal light as they possibly can. Those hardened souls. So I can't speak to a generation that's still to come. I can speak to you. Is your heart hardened? That when the Lord speaks to you, you think of it as, ah, I've heard this nonsense before. Man. I've heard this before. You people say the rapture is going to take place, it's imminent and so on and so forth. I believe differently. It doesn't matter what you believe, it'll still happen. It doesn't matter if I stop believing in the Lord, He's still going to rapture the saint. Do you know that? It doesn't matter what you believe. I'm telling you what's going to happen. You should be ready. Understand that Christ died for your sin. He paid the price to his father. He didn't pay the price to the devil. He doesn't pay anything to the devil. He pays the price to his father for your sin. The father's wrath is satisfied. But you can only come to the father as we have sung earlier. Through Jesus Christ. You come any other way you will experience only one thing. And that is his wrath. Keep that in mind. And if you don't know the Lord as your Savior, you will be left behind. And you will suffer what's being prepared for you, what we have been seeing in this book thus far. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that your word is clear. Even if our minds are not. <clears throat> we need to catch up with your will, your word and your ways. So I pray, Lord. Let your glory of the, of, and your beauty of this plan and your design be revealed more and more to people sitting here. The hard ones. The shallow ones. Reveal more of your glory to them that they may see what it is you're intending. Your purpose. Let them understand your ways more fully, more deeply, I pray. Help us, Lord, to, be, to deepen our burden for the lost we may constantly reach out to people in love, in mercy, not in arrogance, and appeal to them and implore with them that the rapture is soon to take place and they should, they should be ready. We are a prepared people for a prepared place. And all for those who are not prepared will be left behind and what a terrible time that will be for them. Let us take this message out in love and tell people with a burdened heart that they should be ready to be translated into heaven. Thank you again for this time that we have spent. In Jesus' name, Amen. We are grateful that you have chosen to listen to one of our sermons, and it is our prayer that you will be provoked to deepen your walk with Christ through this message. This sermon was recorded at Calvary Baptist Church, Sunny Ridge, Germiston, South Africa. For more information about our church and its ministry, please go to www.facebook.com forward slash Calvary Baptist Sunny Ridge.